see you. Where have you guys been? I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from an off-site campus uh, or on the internet or maybe in another part of this building. We're glad that, uh, that you're along for the ride too. Wow. It really is good to see you guys. Everybody dry enough? Everybody dried off just a little bit? Good. Good. Well, it's good to be back. Um, here's, here's what I want to do today. I want to do two things. Uh, the first has to do with kind of why I've been away. Uh, I've been uh, writing a book, and several of you have asked, is the book done yet? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> and uh, it's about 80% done, and so that's kind of where we are. Uh, the second question that people have asked is, um, um, have you enjoyed it? Have you had a good time doing it? And I'm not sure a good time was the goal, uh, but I kind of answer that l- like this. Um, some days, I'm telling you what, it's, it's an incredible experience. I've never done anything like this before, and it kind of flows, and you enjoy it, and feel like maybe this will help somebody. And then other days, you understand why there is such an abnormally uh, high number of alcoholics among writers. You know, that's just kind of <laughs> how it is. Uh, and then the third question has been, what is it about? I mean, what's it going to sound like? What's, what's it about? So I kind of want to address that for just a minute this morning. What, what I want to do is I'm going to read uh, just the, the introduction to the book so that you can kind of get an idea of where we're going with it. And then the second thing I want to do is... Uh, teach a lesson. I want to teach something that uh, I feel like God has spoken to me uh, this summer and hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Is that all right? That's kind of where we're going to go. So let me just, this will be like Mr. Roberts story time. And let me read just uh, the introduction to the book. You can kind of get a gist of at least how it's going to sound. I approached our recent vacation in Colorado with three lofty goals. Number one, get a picture of a moose. Number two, buy some new cowboy boots. And number three, break 80 on 18 holes of golf. Well, I was successful on two of the three. Golf, on the other hand, not so much. Some people say that golf got its name because all the other four-letter words were taken. And you know, on most days, I'd have to agree. Uh, We arrived in Denver a little before noon on a Friday. And in a couple of hours, I was on the links in hot pursuit of the third goal. Not knowing anyone at the course, the starter randomly grouped me with three complete strangers. The first was a guy about my age, fair golfer, nice guy. His name was John. Second guy was a very athletic salesman type. Randy was his name. He was an African-American, very good golfer. Uh, In fact, he complained about shooting two over par that day. We rode in the cart together. Our fourth playing partner that hot, sunny July afternoon was a guy named Luke. Now, Luke was an obvious octogenarian. He was very thin, very wrinkled, and he was pulling a cart full of clubs intending to walk the entire 18 holes. I could sense right away that Luke was going to be a problem. I hate doing anything slow, especially golf. In fact, my motto is, it's okay to be bad, it's not okay to be slow. It's a little obnoxious, I know, but if you're a golfer, you know that's true. You can play with anyone as long as you keep up the pace. And I'm thinking, how slow could an 86-year-old guy pulling a walking cart in 93-degree weather be? This was going to be a long, frustrating day, I told myself. Not a good way to start the vacation. Well, I was wrong. It was an incredible experience. Luke turned out to be a real piece of work. He was a good golfer, first of all. 
He played three or four times per week, and he shot his age every year since he turned 74. For those of you who are not golfers, I'll not take the time to explain how incredible that is, other than to say that it doesn't look like I will live long enough to ever accomplish (laughs) said feat. I don't hit it as far as I used to, Luke said, but the truth is almost every shot was straight down the middle. As far as keeping up, by the time my cart crisscrossed the golf course chasing my oftentimes errant shots, Luke was usually somewhere near the middle of the fairway, standing there waiting on me. But it wasn't the fact that he was a good golfer that made it an incredible experience. It was his story. See, Luke had lived a lot of life in those 86 years. He'd worked the mines in Butte, Montana until the war broke out in 1940. He served his country with the greatest generation, defending our freedoms for the next few years. Luke had faithfully attended Mass every weekend as long as he could remember. In fact, he started helping as an altar boy in the late 1920s. Now that fact certainly didn't keep him from having a colorful commentary on misplaced shots from time to time. But the most amazing thing about Luke's story was that he had been married to the same woman for 61 years. More precisely, they had walked the aisle and said their vows exactly 61 years ago from the day that we played golf together. Do you get it? An 86-year-old man was celebrating his 61st wedding anniversary by walking 18 holes with three complete strangers in the hot Denver sun. At that point, I became the student. How do you stay married to the same person for 61 years? How do you stay healthy enough to shoot your age at 86. More importantly, how do you get away with playing 18 holes of golf on your anniversary? (laughs) By that time, I'm all ears. It's not a big secret, really, Luke tells me as he drops a long putt. Super Skirt, obviously his pet name for her, doesn't mind what I do as long as she knows she's number one on my list. This morning, I had two roses waiting for her on her pillow when she woke up. I served her breakfast in bed and then left a couple of Benjamins for bad money or mad money on a card in the ta- on the table. Today, while we play golf, she'll shop till she drops without any interference from me. See, she thinks I'm doing this for her. <laughs> what a crafty old geezer. I want to be like Luke when I grow up. What a character. What a story. The truth is, we're all characters in our own way, and we all have a story. We can learn from just about anyone if we'll just ask the right questions. Someone told me once, everybody's good for something, even if it's just to be a bad example. In this book, I'm going to do what I think I do best, and that's telling stories. Sometimes they'll be about people that I know or have met in my three decades of pastoring churches. Sometimes the story will be mine. At times, to be honest, I feel a little like... Bum Phillips, the former coach of the Houston Oilers football team before they defected and became the Tennessee Titans. When asked to speak at a gala event preceding Super Bowl uh, 38, he looked around the star-studded group at the black tie dinner and wondered why he'd been selected to give the speech. In his mind, there were others who were much more qualified. And so the endearingly homespun coach opened his speech by saying, you know, I feel a little like a cow chip someone threw in the punch bowl. Well, you know, sometimes I feel the same way. Most days when I look in the mirror, I see somebody who's way over their head. Sometimes I have a lot more questions than answers. 
Great candidate for leading a megachurch, huh? Over the years, I've met a lot of people like me. At their core, they had a desire to know and follow God, but they have a lot of questions about how life works and wonder at times if God really cares. They have problems living up to their own expectations, much less those of an unseen deity, and they have doubts. Doubts about God, doubts about the church, doubts about themselves. And sometimes they tell me their story. Most of the time, their story is my story. And honestly, it's really all of our stories. Some of us just hide it really well. This is not another how-to book, although it has some how-tos in it. This is a normal guy's journey on becoming a follower of Christ and learning to lead himself and his family and ultimately a church. It's real, sometimes funny, painfully simple, not too preachy, and at times irreverent. I guess it's kind of like me. There are life lessons in everything that happens to us. We just have to be alert enough to see them because God never wastes an opportunity. And I'd like to share a few of mine. Maybe they'll be helpful to you. These are the things that I learned while trying to follow God's call on my life, nurture a family, stay married, raise money, come up with something fresh to say every week, make life-altering decisions that change other people's lives, keep from killing the people I'm supposed to be lovingly shepherding, resisting the temptation to quit, trying to keep it real, and figuring out how to be a spirit-filled but not spooky yet kind of mystical church, worshiping in multiple locations and doing it all inexpensively. Hopefully, you can learn from me like I learned from Luke that day. See, toward the end of our match, he implored us to pick up our pace. See, him and Superskirt had a date that night. They were going to go celebrate their anniversary with a nice meal, some dancing, and then who knows what. He didn't want to be late. Oh, yeah, I didn't break 80 that day, but I did beat Luke by two. He faded a little at the end. I guess the hot sun will do that to you when you're 86 years old and walking. And so anyway, that's the introduction to the, to the book. And uh, hopefully that will be uh, out in maybe six to nine months. And you just pray that the rest of it's better than that. Okay. All right. Let's talk about a lesson. Um, I want to tell you, this is kind of something that, um, that I learned or that was, was impressed on me uh, during, during uh, my break. And it's simple. I'm going to tell you that. Of course, you guys know me. You know it's going to be simple. But I think it's profoundly simple and can be life-altering. I'm praying that it will be life-altering to me as I learn to live out what uh, I'm learning from God's Word. Let, let me start here. I started this year doing a through-the-Bible-in-one-year Bible study. How many of you have ever started to do a through-the-Bible-in-one-year Bible study? Okay. Um, how many of you uh, uh, quit at some, some... Okay, yeah, all right, all right. It, I'm going to be real honest with you. As your pastor, I've read through all of the Bible, but I've never been able to track through in a year doing it every day. I always get behind, have to catch up, and then ultimately, you know, usually it falls by the way. So this year I decided I'm going to get all the way through in in little bit of little bitty settings every day. And so I asked for some help from some of my friends. And so I went on Twitter and Facebook and I said, this is what I want to do. I am woefully inconsistent in this type of thing. I'm going to read the daily readings that you've got to do to do it. And then I'm going to 
take one lesson. I'm going to try to make one lesson in 140 characters or less and post it every day on Twitter and Facebook. And if I don't do that, ask me why not. That'll keep me kind of accountable. And so here it is, day 227, and I've done it every day. So we're, we're on track. Okay. That's, a, that's applause. That's right. That's applause. So, so, so this year I made a mistake, kind of, in a sense. Usually when you do a one-year Bible study, they take you know, a reading from the Old Testament, reading from the New Testament, one from Psalms, and one from Proverbs, because you've got a mixture of stuff. And there are some parts of the Bible that are good, they're inspired, but they can be a little dry. Anybody know anything about that? And so that's usually how you do it. Well, this year I said, well, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm a history buff. So I'm going to do it chronologically, which means I'm going to read it as it happened. Well, that was great until this summer. and We got into Kings. And uh, in Kings... They, um, how it works is, is they'll, it'll say so-and-so was the king of Israel and Judah. And they, you know, started reigning at, you know, let's say age 25. And they reigned for 19 years. And then it always says this. It always says either they did what was good in the sight of the Lord or they didn't do what was good in the sight of the Lord. Okay? And then it tells their story. Well, if they did do what was good, it's great. But if they didn't, then God's judgment came on them. And God always sent a prophet, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and some of the different other prophets, uh, to, to speak his judgment into their life. And here's the problem. More kings were bad than were good. And so in your chronological reading, when you get a whole string of bad kings, then you get a whole bunch of, of, of uh prophets that are pronouncing God's judgment. I remember I woke up recently and, uh, to do my Bible study and I looked at what it was. And I said, oh God, not five more chapters of Jeremiah today. You know, I need something encouraging, not I'm going to fry you on a Weber grill if you don't, you know, da, 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 da. But it's been good because I've learned again, reaffirmed that the judgment of God really expresses God's love. Because uh, it's, a, let, let, let's say this, this will help you to understand the Old Testament. Um, how many of you are married? How many of you are married? Okay, all right. Now, if you're married and your uh, spouse cheats on you, how many of you would be a little upset? Don't raise your hand. How many of you would be a little upset with that? Yeah, you'd be angry, right? How many times would you put up with it? Well, if they were repentant and uh, proved that they were sincere, you might forgive them once, you might forgive them twice. Beyond that, probably not, okay? And you would probably just cut them off and say, I don't ever want to see you again. Well, God compares his people to a marriage, and his people were Israel in the Old Testament, and they would commit adultery. They would cheat on him over and over and over again. And rather than just cutting them off, God would say, no, let me warn them, see if they'll repent. And if they won't repent, I will bring judgment into their life so that at some point they will come back and repent because we listen a lot better through pain than through prosperity. Would you agree with that? And so you see the love of God in his judgment. So anyway, so I'm reading... And I came to a king that just stood out to me. His name was Hezekiah. In fact, the Bible says that there was not a greater king since Solomon and not a greater king that ever lived after Hezekiah. Now, I'm somewhat familiar with Hezekiah because when I was a kid, I used to go to church a uh, little, little uh, Pentecostal church I grew up in, and they had children's church, and you'd have Bible drills, you know, where they, you'd, they'd say, look up such and such, and you'd look it up, and you'd stand up if you're the first one, or they'd say, how many of you memorized a verse this week? And you got points if you memorized a verse. And I hesitate almost to say this, but sometimes, rather than memorize a verse, me and my friends made them up. And <clears throat> then we would, we would make up a book, and the book that we would make up was the book of Hezekiah. 
Because Hezekiah sounds like a book of the Bible, doesn't it? The book of Hezekiah. And so I put one of my verses on the outline sheet. It says this. It says, A lie is an abomination in the sight of God, but a very present help in the time of need. <laughs> That's not in the Bible. In fact... In fact, one of you already sent me a Facebook that said, you got me. I sat there the whole service before you talked about that. I said, what? that doesn't sound like God. That's not right. Where's Hezekiah? I don't have my Bible with me. That's why you should bring your Bible with you all the time because I will fool you and trick you and you've got to look it up and see if it's true. And in fact, it says the RSP, that's the Revised Substandard Perversion. Okay, that's not, a, that's not, that is not a verse. But Hezekiah was a guy who uh, Israel or Judah was a mess when he became king, an absolute mess. His father was a horrible example, Ahaz. Ahaz did things like collect up all of the you know, instruments and stuff that were in the temple and sold them on eBay. Okay? He's just he's a mess. He closed the temple down, all this kind of stuff. And Hezekiah becomes king. And the first thing he does is draw a line in the sand and says, we're not going to be like this. We're not going to do this. We are going to follow God. If it costs me my life, that's okay. But we're going to follow God. So he reopens the temple. He reinstitutes prayer and Bible reading. Uh, they start um, uh, having the Passover, which they hadn't had in years and years and years. They start tithing. You know, that's always a sign that people are wholeheartedly following the Lord is, is when they're saved all the way to their wallet. You know, some people don't get saved all the way to their wallet. Do you know that the wallet... Uh, actually uh, has a sensitive nerve that's attached to your heart. And so it's important that you get that thing saved. And they got it saved. They began to tithe. And then this is the verse that jumped out to me in my reading. It was Second Chronicles thirty-one twenty-one, And it says this. Let's read it out loud. You've got it on your outline sheet. In all that he did in the service of the temple of God and in his efforts to follow the law and the commands... Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly. Stop there. Circle that phrase. Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly in everything he did. Look at the results. As a result, he was very successful. He was very successful. And I thought as I read that, God, I want to be like Hezekiah. God, I want the disciples that you've given me at Seacoast Church. I want us to have a heart like Hezekiah where we seek the Lord with all of our heart and you make us successful. How many of you know there's a difference between being good at something and being successful? Tiger Woods is good. I'm not sure he's successful. See, uh, what is success? I'm going to define success, just arbitrary for me. I'm going to define success as experiencing God's smile. When God looks at you and your devotion to Him and it causes Him to smile, I would say that is success. And if you do that enough, it will flow through all the areas of your life. It will flow through your family, through your business, to the next generation. So how do you do that? How do you become someone who causes God to smile. Let me give you two or three ideas. Number one, successful people make a decision to follow God with their whole heart. They're all in. They're all in. Uh, someone recently, leading our church, um, babysat my oldest grandson, Miles. Miles is three years old, and he's just, you know, he's, he's a character right now. And she took him over to, to her house, and, and she was telling me about this. 
she said he was playing, you know, some of the other kids were, she had two or three kids that were there and they were playing. Some of them went outside and they started playing on a slip and slide. You know what a slip and slide is? You put water on a, you know, piece of vinyl, whatever, and they slide on it. And so she asked Miles, she said, do you want to go outside and play on the slip and slide? And Miles' first response to just about everything right now is no. Okay, no, he's got a better idea. He's doing his deal. That's fine. So she took him to the window and showed him what the other kids were doing. She said, you should have seen, he lit up like a Christmas tree. She said, he put on his swimsuit and he hit, he'd never done it before. He hit the door, came out, didn't stand in line, didn't hesitate, went full bore, launched his chubby little Surratt, three-year-old body, into the air, got air, and zoomed down the slip and slide. And she said, when he got up, the look on his face was like, I was born to do this. He was all in. Now, the rest of that story, his dad told me last night, is uh, when she brought him over to mom and dad's house, she said, uh, Miles, tell daddy what you did today. And he said, I went on the slip and slide. It was like this. And he went and went full bore on their wood floor. Had to go to the dentist. It's okay. It's good. Make him a man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Successful people go on slip and slides. No, successful people go all in. That's what Hezekiah did. The very first thing he did when he became king is he looked around and he said, let me read it. He says the very first month of the first year, his political agenda was this. I'm going to reopen the doors of the tabernacle. We're going to serve God. Why did he do that? Next verse gives you a clue. Our fathers have been killed in battle and our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. So that's how it is. Now it's, things are terrible in our country. But I'm going to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. What's interesting, we read the story. He made a decision. He put a, a line in the sand and he said, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to do it passionately. We're going to go for it. The country was a mess. Nothing was working. And what's amazing about the story is how quickly things turned around. It says, in fact, that people were amazed at how quickly the morale changed, the people changed. When a leader steps up and goes, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to follow God wholeheartedly and passionately. And that's what God's looking for in you and I. He looks around and he says, things have got to be better than this. Have you ever had one of those moments? Have you had a moment in your life where you looked around and you said, you know what? Life must be about more than what I'm pursuing right now. Things have got to be better than where I am right now. If you haven't, I want to ask you why not. If, if you've decided, well, I'm, I'm not going to pursue God wholeheartedly, I'll ask the Dr. Phil question, how's that working for you? I'll tell you how it's working for you. God's not allowing you to be that way. Some of the pain that you have in your life right now is a result of God's judgment because He's drawn you to Him. You need to make a decision. I'm going to go wholeheartedly. Now, how do you know you've made that decision? How do you know? that you're following God wholeheartedly. I think the answer can be found in the questions that you ask. The questions that you ask. Um, when you go to the doctor, sometimes, and, you, and you've got a problem inside, the doctor will say, let me look at your tongue. And you go, well, the problem's not with my tongue. No, but the tongue gives evidence a lot of times to what the problem is. And the things that we say reveal what our heart is about. And sometimes we might think we're following God wholeheartedly, but we're really not. And you can tell by the questions that we ask. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe you're looking at buying something. Maybe it's a long-term thing, short-term thing, whatever it happens to be. If the question 
first question and the primary question that comes out of your mouth is, can I afford this? Then I would say you're probably not passionately following God. It's a good question, but it's not the question that a passionate follower, a wholehearted follower of God asks. Maybe it's a career decision. And maybe the first question out of your mouth is, will this take care of my family? Do they pay enough? What do they pay? Good question. But it's probably not the question that a passionate, wholehearted follower of God would say, somebody who's successful. In a relationship. Um, maybe the question is, are we compatible? Or you know, what lines can we cross or not cross? Or, or maybe it's, you know, who has a right to tell us anything? Whose business is it? Legitimate questions, but those are not the questions that a fully devoted follower of Christ would ask. Um, what is the question? I'm glad you asked. Does this honor God? Does this honor God? That's the question. Does All the rest of them go below that. Maybe this week you went to... Uh, What's a good clothing place? Uh, Goodwill. Um, <laughs> what's the one downtown where they they created the whole store? What I, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, Urban Outfitters. Let, let's say that you went to Urban Outfitters or Goodwill or wherever you go buying, and you were looking at clothes. And what's the question you asked? Does this make me look good? Will I look sexy? Now, with some of us, there is no answer to that second question. I mean, it's just like no. If you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, when you went to your closet this morning before you came to church, you asked the question, will this honor God? Will this honor God? You say, boy, that's tough stuff. It's the cost of being a fully devoted follower of Christ. You either are or you aren't. There's really not a middle ground. And the first question that you ask as a missional Christian is, whatever I'm doing, will this honor God? That's what Hezekiah did. Wasn't popular opinion, it wasn't whatever. We're going to do what honors God. So the first thing a successful person does is follow God wholeheartedly. Let me give you a second one. Successful people look bad news in the eye and they still trust God. They look bad news right in the eye and they still trust God. Interesting about this story is immediately after God pronounces him successful, it says he's, he's wholehearted. Look at what the next verse says. He brings trouble. It says, After Hezekiah had faithfully carried out this work, King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded Judah. King Sennacherib. Here's what I know about this guy. He's a bad dude. Really bad. His name literally means sin is my brother. Okay? He is the king of Assyria. His throne is in Nineveh. Anybody remember Nineveh? Remember the story of Jonah? The reason Jonah took a swim is because he did not want to go to Nineveh where this guy was. Bad dude. This guy's the most powerful king in the world at the time. He had subjugated all the countries around him, including most of Israel, did terrible things to him. And now he has surrounded Hezekiah. It's as if God is saying, hey, you're faithful. Great job. Here's my gift. Maybe you've been there. You start tithing and your washing machine breaks, you know or the car needs repair, or whatever. It, it, trouble comes. Listen to this. This is what happened to this guy. Trouble comes. Sennacherib sends a letter to Hezekiah. I happen to have a copy of it right here. 
from King Sinai. Uh, Nineveh, Northern Kingdom, 66666 to King Hezekiah. Now, this part is legitimately in the Bible. I'm not fooling you with this. This is in 1 Kings. He says, Dear Hezekiah, this message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well uh, what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they've gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. Why should you be any different? Signed, your friend, Sinny. Truth is, some of you have gotten a letter like this. Some of you have gotten a letter from the government. You've gotten a letter from the bank. You've gotten a letter from the doctor. You've gotten a letter that starts, Dear John. You've gotten a letter that is bad news. How do successful people handle that? Well, let's see what he did. Look at, look at the next verse. I love this. It says that, uh, 2 Kings 19.14, after Hezekiah received the letter and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and he spread it out before the Lord. He took it out and he spread, he spread, spread it out before the Lord. Some of you need to do that. You need to take whatever that circumstance is and you need to spread it. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. When you get the letter, there is a pit in the core of your stomach that it's a hollow place and it's a hurting place and it's, you, you wonder, will I survive this? Can I survive this? That's the first thing all of us feel. If you read the story here, uh, the background of it, you'll see that he does too. But he doesn't stop there. He goes and he spreads it out and here's how he prays. And listen very carefully to his prayer. He says, O Lord God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Listen to me, O Lord, and hear. Open up your eyes, O Lord, and see. What does he do? He starts not with his problem. He starts with reminding himself how great God is. And if you've got trouble in your life, that's where you start. You don't start with the problem. You start with, God, you're awesome. God, you're the God that created everything that I see. God, you're the God that has delivered your people down through the ages. I can just imagine as he begins to pray, that pit in his stomach begins to shrink and he begins to get a little bit of courage and he even begins to believe what he's praying. Because he's reminding himself of how big God really is. Then he goes on and he says, you know, it's true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. He doesn't deny the truth and say, oh, that's not true, that's not true. That No, he says, it, you know, this guy wrote me a letter. He's telling the truth. They just fried everybody. That's true. And they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them because they're not gods at all. They're only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from this power. And then all of the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, is God. By the time he gets done praying, I think he believes his own words. 
Have you ever said something and you didn't really believe it? <laughs> Until it came out of your mouth and then it's like, oh yeah. Then he does what a lot of us need to do. He turns to those that he's leading. Now I've got his prayer on your outline sheet. I'm not going to read it. But he turns to those that he's leading. And he says, you know what? It's going to be okay. The army that's surrounding us, they're huge. But they are nothing compared with God. Some of you are leaders right now. You're leaders in your family. You're leaders in business. You're coaches. Some of you are in political office. And maybe on your team or the area that you lead, there's a real morale problem and they're discouraged and there is major problems. Might do with the economy or maybe with something else. And here's what the people who follow you desperately need for you to do. They need you to be successful. They need you to be a person who wholeheartedly follows God, but not only that, that looks trouble and looks bad news in the eye and says, yeah, but there's a God. They need you to speak the word that will lift their hearts. And so some of you need to take the bad news and you need to go into a closet and you need to spread it out before God. Say, God, here it is. God, you're awesome. You're great. Remember everything that God has done. Count your blessings. Ask for him to deliver you and then stand before the people and deliver a great word. Now, I don't know how God will deliver you. I know how he delivered... uh, Hezekiah was crazy. They didn't have to fight. An angel of the Lord came and wiped out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Do you know God can do that? (laughs) When it seems to be there's no way God can make a way, and he did. And they left. They didn't have to fight, and, and, and the whole thing was taken care of. I don't know how God will deliver you. I don't know if he'll do it miraculously. I don't know if he'll do it tomorrow. I don't know if he'll do it next week or next year or whether it will be something in eternity that you'll look back and say, wow, that's how he did it. I have no idea. But I do know that he doesn't want you to be afraid. He wants you to look trouble in the eye and still trust that God is able and he's in control. All right, let me give you one more thing, one more idea um, about success. It's never too late to start being successful. It's never too late to start being successful. Zechariah fortunately started serving the God, God early, even though his dad didn't. He became king at 25 years old and immediately he made some changes. And that's the best thing to do. I don't know how many people have told me since I've been pastor at Seacoast, I wish I had heard that message years ago. <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have had to pay stupid tax all those years. And you know, that's good. That's good. But it's never too late to start. Other stories in the Bible, you look at Moses. Moses was 40 years old and made a major mistake. Major. And it looked like he'd finished his life off. Government's trying to find him to kill him. The people that he God's called him to lead want nothing to do with him. They don't trust him anymore. They feel like his word is not good and his actions aren't good. He runs away, 40 years old, sitting by a well in a country that nobody knows him. He's thinking it's over for me. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat a worm. Here's what we know about Moses. We know that at 40 years old, he had not yet done the things that he was famous for. In fact, he hadn't even done them by 80 years old. It is never too late to start being a success. I was at a reunion, Colorado, last last day we were there. Somebody had called together a reunion of the little church that I 
grew up in. And because we were going to be there, they put on Facebook, hey, let's get a bunch of us together. And about 35, 40 people showed up. It's kind of fun. Most of them we hadn't seen in 40 years. I hate to even say that word. It's more like 30 years. Hadn't seen him in, in forever. And, you know, we got to know each other and exchange stories, pictures, all that kind of stuff. You know what, what happens there. And uh, then everybody started leaving one at a time. And finally, the sun has gone down and there are no lights in the park where we're at. And the last three guys that are there are me and two guys that I had a band with when I was growing up. One of them went on and did music when the band broke up, became very famous. I've talked about him before. He's been here one time most recorded guitar player in the history of Nashville. And, uh, and then there was me, uh, who he says there are two types of musicians, those who have talent, those who have instruments. He said you had talent. Or instruments, instruments, I mean, I didn't have talent. That works better when I tell it right. And then the third one. And this is a guy that was very talented. And when Brent and I went other directions, he felt like he was left holding the bag. In fact, didn't hear from him for 30 years. About seven years ago, went back to Denver. and Suddenly, I don't know how, we connected. We sat down in a fast food restaurant and he poured out his story. And he said to me, he said, I've been bitter and angry at you for 30 years for your decision not to continue the band. He said, it destroyed my life. He wanted to tell me what all had gone on. He tried to go into music and it hadn't worked and Burned through a couple of marriages and kids, you know, challenges. and Life had not gone well for him. I remember going home from, I asked him to forgive me and went home from that situation and told Deb, I, I said, he didn't even look like the same guy, just angry. And So we've met every couple of years. Still, still angry. And then earlier this year, he and I were talking. Challenged him to make a new start. He did. He got involved in church. Been out of church for years. Um, started serving. Going back and doing the little things that you do in order to be passionate about following God. His life has changed. Now he's in, as far as circumstances, he's in some tough circumstances right now. But he looked different. Last thing I said to him, I poked my finger in his chest. I said, buddy, you look good. He knew what I was talking about. It's not on the outside because neither one of us, life has not been good in that area. You know, just... But on the inside, there was a glow. I told Deb later, I, I can't wait to see what the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years of God's grace in his life is going to look like because he's got a plan. And it's never too late to start being a success. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the lessons that we can learn. Thank you for how you work your will in our lives, God. Sometimes when we're listening and sometimes when we're not. And Lord, in this next few moments, I just pray that there would be a sense of hearing you, of listening for what you're saying in our lives, and then responding to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.